Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there we're positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. Today's guest is Jeffrey Garrett. Jeffrey is a senior partner for leadership development for the Partnership for LA Schools, an in-district partner to the LA Unified School District, serving schools and communities to build capacity in great leaders, highly effective teachers, and engaged and empowered communities. He is also a co-host of All of the Above, a YouTube show that tackles issues facing American schools today. Additionally, Jeffrey has worked with several schools and organizations nationally, including Springpoint, as a consultant where he has coached and supported leaders of innovative schools. In our conversation, Jeffrey shares many thoughts about the challenges that face our public school system today and what shifts he thinks we should make for our system to become more equitable. He highlights some of his learnings from his exploration of current topics in education and what he's learned from the myriad of guests he's talked to on the show. He discusses critical topics in education today, including standardized testing, recruiting for diversity in the teaching force, anti-racism in education, and much, much more. It was a true pleasure sitting down with Jeffrey Garrett, a true humble badass in the world of education today. Thank you for tuning in. Jeffrey Garrett, thank you so much for joining me today for Humble Badass Educators. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell the listeners about yourself, what makes you a badass, and where does that intersect with humility? Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) So I'm glad you asked the second part of that question, because I I definitely uh, struggle with the act of tooting my own horn in in public places. But um, I think what makes me a badass is, um, is really, at its core, my commitment to trying to do good work. And I think that, you know, we often, you know, it's often interpreted as just like a very hokey sort of thing. Like I, you know, I want to make the world a better place. I think there's a very serious way to approach that phrase and to really think about the kind of moral responsibility that we all have. And, and also I think on some level, like a fundamental, um, you know, almost genetic type of urge that we have to, you know, whether it's passing on good things to our children or whether it's cleaning up trash in the street, but there's, there's some natural urge I think people feel to wanting to improve things around them. And, and I think about that as, as like a fundamental driver of my, of my work. And I've you know, chosen a path of, of education, um, you know, first of wanting to be a, a teacher and really connect with young people and feel like, um, you know, I was spending all my time and energy worrying about how to help young people develop and think. And as a social studies teacher, you know, really develop like a, a political consciousness. 
um, and then eventually becoming, you know, a principal and, and wanting to feel like I could, you know, ad administer uh, an institution and a community that uh, could kind of take on that work at some level of scale. Um, and now, you know, working for a network of schools here in LA and, and feeling like, you know, what I, what I do and what I get out of bed for in the morning is, is trying to intentionally work on stuff that we know is wrong and stuff that we know can be better and trying to figure out solutions to make that, to make that happen. And, and frankly, to try to make the jobs of all the other people who do that work every day, hopefully a little bit easier. Well, I was going to say where that intersects with humility <laughs> is, um, you know, this is, it, it, there's a reason we haven't achieved social justice, right? Um, there's, there are so many complexities, so many barriers, so much need for greater education um, in our society about, about a whole host of things, race, class, gender, et cetera. And, uh, and so if, the, you know, if this was just like, let's work hard and that was enough to solve the problem, we would have, we would have achieved it decades ago. And so I think I'm, I am humbled by the kind of gravity of the task and the, the breadth and scope of that task. And also, you know, inspired by the, the geniuses who have come before me and the opportunity I have to, you know, to learn from what they've done. And hopefully in my, you know, relatively short time on this earth, push the ball another step down the, the field, if you will. Um, on our on our path to justice. Pretend for a bit that we have a blank slate with um, all things education. Uh, you have the ability to just kind of create and build an education system from scratch. What would that look like for you? Wow, I mean, that is, uh, that's a profound question, Jeremy. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> I think my most recent thinking on this question, because if you had asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have said something different than I'm going to say right now. Um, but I have been thinking a lot recently about, um, especially in this year of the, of the pandemic, um, or second year, really, uh, of the pandemic school year wise, um, is that there, there has been this sort of thrust of energy, effort, interest, in like, let's innovate, let's do things differently. And yet, in all, almost all the places that I am familiar with around the country, there's very little that's actually being done differently, right? Obviously, school via Zoom is very di different than physical school, but we're still trying to do the same things with kids on Zoom that we were trying to do with kids in person. And we are still feeling pressured by the same constraints that um, that I think most educators feel, felt, feel very impacted by in physical school, whether that's high stakes standardized testing, whether that's um, the, the sort of pressure to cover all the standards, whether that's um, just like, you know, the kind of bureaucracy, right? Rules and regulations, seat time hours, and, you know, and um, credit requirements and constraints of the schedule and those sorts of things. And I don't mean to like dismiss all that stuff. Like I, I get it, there, you know, there's, there's good motivations behind lots of those things too. But if I, if I had the magic wand, if I were king for a, a day, I think um, I really feel like we, we have reached a point where we've exhausted 
uh, a lot of the good that can come from the kind of orientation towards the standards and standardized testing that we currently have. Um, and we need to break open the mold a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm not a person who is like wholesale anti-standardized testing. I, I think standardized tests are, are a very important tool because the best tool we have to make comparisons across large um, populations. And frankly, our, it's an important, you know, most of the equity work in this country in education that's really being pushed relies on standardized testing data to help quantify the extent of, of the problem, right? Even if we know intuitively what the problems are. Um, so I don't mean let's throw it all out the window. I do mean that um, we need to put standards and standardized testing in their proper place, which is to say they are tools that help us assess what we are doing. They're not actually the endpoint goal that we have, right? And, and you, this is obviously true in any context outside of like education policy. Right. If you talk to a bunch of parents on the street, what do you, you know, what do you want for your kids? Um, you know, what kind of, what things are you looking for in a school? Literally, no one says, "I hope my child is proficient at the end of the year." And literally, no one, you know, <laughs> says like, "I hope what we get is some really outstanding, you know, practice for the Smarter Balanced or the Park Assessment." So, you know, so that my my kid gets a four this year <laughs> or whatever. Right, like. People want to know their kids are learning, but they are much more interested in developing their child's passions and their kid feeling safe and, and supported and nurtured in, um, you know, the, the kind of social experience of school to a large extent, which I think the pandemic has showed us just how, how much of the equation that is. Um, and so I think we need to shift our attention away from the idea of this whole conversation about learning loss that's taking place, that's starting to dominate the, the policy conversation right now and shifted towards like, what, what have we actually lost from being in distance learning or in hybrid settings that are still mostly distance learning? And how do we focus our attention on making those things be what we, you know, what we want to be true and good about schools when we come back? or to the extent we can build them now, um, you know, if, it, if it's through a distance learning model. And, um, and we can measure those things, right? Like we can measure joy and we can measure, um, you know, development of social skills and we can measure, you know, um, critical consciousness um, or like what a Goldie Muhammad will call criticality. Like we, we can, we could have, you know, we could have standards and assessments that are about those things. Um, and, and measuring our success by the extent to which we create those things. Um, but we are, it feels like we were off track and instead of seizing this opportunity to make something better, we are digging deeper into uh, a, a state of entrenchment on some things that I think are, are just, perhaps have outlived their usefulness in our, in our profession or, you know, our approach to them, our orientation to them has, has outlived its usefulness. So Jeffrey, how do we get there? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a tough question. If, the, if I had an easy answer, I would, <laughs> I would give it to you. Um, because I, I, so I go very much back and forth on this idea of like, should we just resist standardized testing and either, you know, push from a policy perspective to not do it, 
right now to create space? Or, um, or should we say, no, let's not, you know, let's, let's keep doing it, that's fine. Um, but we are going to stack up some other things next to it, right? Um, so instead of saying the only outcome that matters is, you know, progress on this test, um, we can say here are, you know, three or four other things that also matter and, and we're going to talk about them in concert with one another. Um, and there's part of me that says, you know, realistically, we may have to push back harder against, uh, you know, against this current kind of testing regime that we have in order to make the space for any change at all. Because from, a, you know, from the US Department of Ed down to the like massive influence of, of philanthropy down to state and local officials, there is, there's just so much inertia right now around, um, around what was created with No Child Left Behind. And even though it's kind of morphed in, you know, in today's landscape, it still constrains our imagination, I think, in, in a lot of the same ways. And so there's part of me that says, like, we're just going to have to resist. There's another part of me that actually really worries about that, because I don't think we are good enough as a profession right now at doing this other reality that I imagine. Um, and what I worry about is in the short term, while we're working to get good, uh, the kids who are gonna pay the price of that experimentation the, the most and who are gonna be the most harmed and disadvantaged are the kids I care about most, which is you know, black and brown youth and poor kids and folks who are marginalized in different ways within our, our current system. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm a bit on the fence about it. Um, I do, I want to believe that there is a way that we can exercise um, power within this system as a profession of educators, teachers, and administrators. And uh, I think this is a space where our interests align with those of, of families and can collectively say, hey, we, we want something different and, uh, and express that power in a way that politicians are going to have to yield to. Um, and frankly, there are subversive things we could do to like create space for it, right? Which many communities across the country have organized in, you know, in certain ways, right? Of, of like opting out of testing at certain points or those sorts of things. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult task. I, you know, I have no illusion about that. But, um, but I think as educators, what we definitely have control over um, while this larger political fight plays out is our ability to um, to uphold a very high standard of excellence for ourselves and to kind of take back the conversation about what good strong ethical practice looks like from um, you know from bureaucrats and policymakers uh, as being like the central voices in that conversation to practitioners and, you know, and our partners in higher ed who are, you know, experts in the field um, as being the people who say like, hey, what does good teaching look like? And what does it mean for us to be responsible and do right by our communities? Um, and for us to own that conversation and not for, you know, publishers and governors to own that conversation. I want to dig deeper, like taking the measurement piece out of things. Um, you say that we're not doing good enough. What does it look like to do better? 
Yeah. I So it, there's a lot of things there, to be honest, um, Jeremy. So it's hard to like pick just one. But I will say um, something that I've thought a lot about recently is um, is the role of our unions in our in our conversations. And I am I am not an anti-union person. I am someone who gets frustrated frequently with <laughs> with the stance of our unions on on certain issues. And um, and so, for example. Right um, here, here in LA, as in many places around the country, right um, over the last few years, there's been a real uh, kind of swelling of union activity and 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 a strike and right like lots of um, political power expressed to push an agenda, right? Um, and I look at the outcome of that, and I say, now, you know, in, in say Arizona and Oklahoma where folks are getting paid like sub minimum wage and, you know, just crazy stuff, they got some real wins in a kind of material way that I think didn't exactly happen here in LA where not the teachers are well paid, but it wasn't like you had to work the overnight shift at the diner in order to like just survive, right? Um, and so, so I look at that and say like this tremendous base of power was mobilized, organized, and expressed itself. And, and what did we get, right? And like, what was on the table in those conversations? And I, I'm not naive. I know teachers are underpaid, need, you know, need to be paid more, and I 100% support that. But at the end of the negotiation here, they didn't get any more money than they, than they got in the initial offer right before the strike, right? Um, and some of the services and things that, that were a part of the new contract, like additional librarians and nurses, there were just, there's lots of complexities with, right? Like not every school actually in this day and age, in the 21st century, wants a librarian, right? Not every school, um, they, the district can't hire enough nurses because of how the pay structure is uh, set up for nurses, right? So I look at some of those things and I think like, what are we bringing to the table? as educators in the spaces where we have power to fight for? Are we bringing to the table a conversation that says, let's map out all the things that you can't make me do as a professional, right? Um, this is, these are the limits of hours that I can be asked to do X, Y, and Z activities. Or are we bringing to the table a list of demands about like, here's what it takes for a teacher to be effective, right? If I'm gonna be an effective ninth grade global history teacher, I need this set of conditions. I need to be able to plan with my colleagues. I need to be able to assess students and look at student work from that assessment. I need to have some kind of coaching or support or, you know, with that process. I need, you know, a data system that makes it so I don't spend countless hours on the weekend hand tallying stuff up or, you know, having to transfer data from one system to another just to get a spreadsheet that halfway works me to see how the kids did right like to me that is the the nature of the conversation that I would like to see us have um, when we are in the places where we are saying here's here's what our profession and here's what these institutions that we spend our whole careers working in need to look like in order for us to serve the community well and we need to be the real keepers of the flame on that and I think right now sadly there are more spaces than not where 
you know, when people are having the conversation about how are we going to do right by kids, how are we going to do right by families, educators are not the first people that folks go talk to. And some of that is on, you know, is <laughs> some of that is not our fault. But too much of it, it comes from the fact that I think that when we are in the mode of saying like, we're making demands as a profession, it's shaped around this, you know, this sort of like industrial model, right? Um, and it's not shaped around like, what are the things that are needed to serve the community well? And, and because of that, it sometimes puts our interests at odds with the interests of families and students and the community. And we, we have to rectify that, right? Like it's a, we will always lose the political battle if we are in a position of saying like, you know, well, it's gotta be only 42 minutes of this instead of 45 minutes of this. When what we should be talking about is like, why is this program important and how are we gonna make it work in a way that doesn't kill educators because they're working 18 hours a day and six and seven days a week, right? Um, and that's, that's a framing that will bring our interests in line with the interests of, of families and communities. How much of our system has been built on um, systemically racist ideologies, I guess, and uh, from, in your opinion? Oh, it's a huge, I mean, it is, it's in the DNA, right, um, of our, of the institution of school in this country um, from the beginning. And we have, we have never really seriously taken on the work of trying to, to undo that. Um, so, you know, there, there are people who, uh, who I interact with as a, as a result of the show who are like, look, that's nice that you're talking a big game about making schools anti-racist, but like schools are racist, it were designed to be racist. So th there's no making it anti-racist. To me, that approach feels a bit nihilistic. And, and um, so I just, I'm sort of like, well, I don't, you know, we can wait for utopia to come and, you know, it'll be different. But I think there's tremendous potential in school as a public institution in a way that, that um, there's not potential, for example, in like, um, you know, detention camps that are separating kids from families at the border, right? Like, I, I don't think we can reform those. I, I think we can make school a fundamentally better place and better institution. Um, but I think, you know, to your actual question, I think you're right. Um, the 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 baking in of racist policy into our you know our policies into our unions into um, the way we operate uh, is pretty fundamental and there there's a lot of tough work we need to that frankly that folks are beginning to be more interested in uh, which I think is a good sign um, but we haven't really gotten to the difficult conversations um, in that equation yet, um, which, which gets more to like changing the way we act, right? And taking responsibility for harm that we may have caused and um, sharing power in different ways than, than we had before. And in, and in altering our hiring practices and in changing the way, especially now that, you know, rec recession budget cuts like we got off a little bit light this year, but next year, presuming there's no like major, major federal intrusion of dollars, um, we're gonna see some pretty substantial layoffs 
uh, of teachers in many districts across the country. And what we know about our profession is, you know, our teachers of color are younger and less senior than um, white teachers. And we already have a major challenge with diversity in our profession in, in most districts around the country and lack of representation. Um, and we could be looking at a situation where we're just going to exit from our profession a disproportionately large chunk of, of educators of color, right? Um, and so we can see that coming. We know this, you know, we know what this is going to result in. We have an opportunity to do something different, right? And to take a, you know, an anti-racist stance and say like representation in our profession is critically important. We are already really struggling to do right by kids and communities on this issue already, and we're not going to let this problem get worse, right? But that's going to that's going to be a difficult conversation, right? We're going to have to not just continue with the formula we've always used, right? When it comes to selection criteria for for layoffs, right? And and when it gets to that point, what are you know? What are we going to do? And in particular, what are white educators going to do? And what's the community going to tolerate? And I, I hope that this upswelling of interest in this topic is going to create some space to, to, you know, to think creatively about this. But, but it's that kind of stuff that is now the work, I think, right? Like, identify it, name it, and let's talk about what it means to actually share power and distribute resources in a different way. I want you to say a little bit more about the the teacher workforce um, being just so disproportionately white. Like, why? How do we change that? Man, you know, it's funny because I have um, talked a lot about this, but actually, I've spent my whole career working in New York City, and or at least mostly in New York City and in Los Angeles, which have two of the most diverse <laughs> educator cores in the country, and um, and so you know, it is. This problem is like something I'd known, and I grew up in a system that was certainly, you know, I can count on one hand the number of black educators that, um, you know, that I had, or educators of color that I had in my K to 12 experience, or even in higher ed, didn't have very many. Because you grew um, up in Minnesota, right? I grew up, yeah, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and, you know, in a school district that was majority students of color, and yet, you know, I mean, our teaching, staff when I was a kid, it, it must have been like 90, above 90% white educators would be my, <laughs> my guess. Maybe it's a little less than that, but um, I mean, just, you know, the problem is profound. Um, so in terms of what we do about it, you know, I think there is, there's a lot of good folks like doing scholarship on this. What I kind of take away from them. Um, we had on our show earlier this spring, um, Travis Bristol, uh, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, and uh, Misha Mosley, who's um, the head of the Black Teacher Project. And two, two incredible folks, I, I recommend you like get to the Google machine and, uh, and look them up and, and read some of their work. And, and um, listen, listen to that podcast. I, I actually just um, listened to that episode recently this week. Uh, it's a really good one. Oh, thanks, man. Glad, glad you appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I think there are a few layers to the problem, and, I, and I'm going to borrow heavily from their work, right? So there's obviously a recruitment uh, issue and a hiring practices issue. There's a retention issue 
and um, like a sustainability issue, right? And there's just sort of the cultural uh, phenomenon that we're, we're encountering as well, right? The, the fact that like historically, schools have not always served communities of color well. And so asking people from those communities to then turn around and work within institutions they may have experienced as, you know, as harmful or oppressive, um, it takes a certain degree of faith that a lot of folks are not willing to, to give, right? Um, and then there's just like some sheer economic issues, right? Like if you're, if you need to be the breadwinner for your family and you're looking at a career path, um, you know, teaching is not going to be the path that gives you the type of income that allows you to take care of a big family on one income, um, you know, at least in the, in the short run um, of your career. And so, um, you know, and that's like layered in, in the like, in the patriarchy, right? The historical devaluing of teaching as a primarily female profession and, you know, and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of layers there. I, I do think that um, some of the ones that are maybe easier to tackle first are around uh, recruitment and retention, right? Like we have, I mean, in this country, we throw money at problems, that's how we fix problems. And, um, you know, people like to turn that around and, and weaponize it. But those are the very same people that throw money at, you know, at B-52 bombers and, and you know, Space Force uh, to solve those problems in the hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So we could put a fraction of that into diversifying our teacher course and radically transform things in a decade, right, um, or, or more. And so... Um, so, you know, ultimately when I came into teaching, uh, there was a, a program, I'm forgetting exactly what it's called. I want to say it was called like Teachers of Tomorrow, something like that, um, in New York State that, uh, you know, recognized they had a teacher shortage and paid people, it was like $3,000 or maybe $4,000 a year for your first three years of teaching in the, um, teaching in, in the state or in the city. And, uh, you know, this is not, this is not a like massively, on a federal level, this is not a massively expensive program, right? But to me, as a, you know, as a first year teacher who, uh, you know, had a mountain of debt and, you know, was living off of credit cards, that was a, you know, that was a huge difference. And frankly, made it much more financially sustainable for me to remain in the profession and to feel like, like it was a viable economic choice for me. So we, we have things like this that we've done before that we could specifically target at underrepresented groups to, to say, this is, a, this is something we value and it's important and we're going to throw, <laughs> throw money at it, right? We're going to create conditions that make it more likely that people will enter the profession um, and stay in it. Uh, and I think those are things that like we could very easily do from a, from a policy perspective. The stuff that's trickier, right, that is, um, you know, that gets more into like creating culturally sustainable environments for educators of color to work in is a, is a lot more difficult and is going to take um, not only just like some intentional policy around like we need investment in strategies to retain people, right? Um, whether that's sort of affinity spaces in the workplace or whether that is, um, you know, additional coaching and support for folks, uh, you know, those kinds of things can be provided, but also there's going to have to be an opening up of space in schools 
for people to feel like their their voice and their perspective is valued. And um, and I think that the actual like process of doing that, right? Like using a using a protocol in a meeting <laughs> um, is is simple. But the the cultural and political power dynamics among educators are, is where it gets difficult, right? And it means that like the white man who talks too much in the social studies department meeting is going to have to shut up a little bit, right? And it means that the white woman on the second grade team who you know um, feels that she can uh, you know create her own agenda for the meeting, even though the meeting has an agenda, <laughs> and, and you know everyone we only have thirty six minutes for this meeting once a week, and there's a lot to try to accomplish. Is going to have to you know save her comments for the bar on Friday with her friends, right? Um, and we're going to have to we're going to have to intentionally name some of those things and say we are going to shift our behavior, right? Because this is important for us. Um, and frankly, Jeremy, you know, there's there's a degree to which I think there's a lot of goodwill among educators. There's also a degree to which we have some folks who are you know, who are keepers of the kind of architecture of oppression within our, within our field. And we're gonna have to let some folks go, right? We're gonna have to tell folks, this is what we are doing and why it's important. And we're not gonna allow you to undermine this work. And um, we're going to have to have a critical mass of folks, white educators in particular, in places where at least currently, it is overwhelmingly white folks who make up the educator core, are gonna have to say like, this is where we're going. And if you're not on board, then this might not be, you know, the, the school or the district or the profession for you to be in. Um, and that's, that is painfully not that different than the, than the kind of work we are asking police forces to do right now, right? Like you, you cannot be uh, a cop out here choking people to death for it eight minutes on the street, right? This is morally unacceptable. And we cannot allow people like this to remain in the profession, right? Now, I'm not saying educators are murdering kids physically, but, you know, to, to borrow words from, uh, you know, from Bettina Love, the, uh, the spirit murdering of our youth is a real thing. And we are going to have to you know, uphold some expectations about like what kind of conduct is okay and what's not okay. And we're gonna have to let some folks go if they're unwilling. You know, there was just um, this weekend going viral, these images of a school in Oklahoma with, you know, some educators dressed up as a Trump border wall and stuff for Halloween, right? Um, there's no place for that in our profession, I would argue. And uh, we can't just leave it up to like the, the district policy to tell us that. There also needs to be an understanding that that's fundamentally at odds with our, with our values as a profession of caring for the well-being of all of our students. Um, I want to dig into some of the different types of things that you're personally doing, Jeffrey, to help shift some of this mindset and to help with this more progressive change um, I want to start with your show. Um, tell the listeners a little bit about your show, what it is, um, why you, why it came to be, what you're hoping to achieve from it. Yeah, so the show's called All the Above, and um, 
you know, I think we originally, uh, Manuel, I'm, I have to give credit to, because the, the idea for the show was his. And he, he hit me up one day and was like, I got this crazy idea. Uh, our school built, um, has a media arts pathway. Um, he works at a high school outside of LA and was like, we have this studio. I want to do this show. Are you down? And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's try this out. Um, and how did you know Manuel? Yeah, so Manuel is a, a, an old friend. We went to grad school together and got our, our teaching credential at the same time. So in the, you know, back in the day when people actually went to grad school to get a teaching credential, <laughs> Jeremy, we, uh, we did that together um, and uh, did, our, did our student teaching up in, in Boston and, uh, and then went separate ways. So he, he's from California, went home to Sacramento. I went to New York. And um, we, we reconnected when I moved to LA about six years ago, and he had been here for, for a few years before that. Um, so originally, I think that you know, the show started as this, I, this kind of concept and idea of trying to do something somewhat similar to, uh, for folks who might be sports fans, um, the show, um, uh, Pardon the Interruption, right? With um, Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, um, was like, what, what if we did something like that, but about education? Um, and there are still kind of like hints of that model of the show, you know, uh, that I think are still true. Um, and then it was the idea that, you know, you don't get to hear conversations about education that are kind of about the issues, but not like real classroom stuff right so there's a million podcasts out there and I, I don't mean that in a bad way right but like if you want to figure out how to teach you know this lesson in illustrative math like somebody out there made a podcast about how to teach this lesson and that's great and you can go find that right um or if you want to learn about different programs or strategies there's all kinds of good stuff but there wasn't really that much about kind of issues in education where actual educators are talking about the issues, right? Where it's not politicians or pundits of some kind, but actually folks who spend time in schools with teachers and kids, uh, you know, every day. And so, um, so that was a major driver was like, let's kind of elevate educator voice. And then also uh, Manuel has been a career teacher. Um, I of course was a teacher, but became an administrator and, you know, still work as a, kind of quasi district administrator. And we like the idea of like a teacher and an administrator talking together, which we felt like was a perspective that you, you almost never get to hear. And not, and I guess I should say like talking together and not in an adversarial, <laughs> you know, sort of sense, right? Not about like some bad memo that just went out. So, um, so that was really, I think, the, the driver for us in making the show. And I, I think that has sustained um, throughout. We've been at it for three years, a little over three years now. And um, I think all of those things are, are still true. You know, the show's evolved a lot. Um, but at its core, you know, we wanted to kind of ele elevate educator voice, bring conversations between the real practitioners, right? Teachers and administrators. And, um, and then I think champion um, the values that we both bring to the work around, um, you know, around like social justice at kind of the highest level and then digging in, you know, scratching the surface of that and, and talking about how it manifests in all these different aspects of our work, right? In 
school uniform policies and um, in how we measure learning in you know the curriculum we choose and the um, conversations we have about safety at school and all of these different ways so yeah that's that's kind of the the genesis of it there we've already talked uh, about some of the big themes that i've kind of taken away what maybe who are some of your guests or what are some of the topics that you've discussed that are like really have been pivotal for you wow yeah i mean so so many things man um this in a bizarre way i would say the one aspect of my life that has been improved by the pandemic is actually the show i think that's because you know everybody's quarantining so we typically film on saturdays and now nobody's going anywhere on saturday man so uh and because we shoot remotely and everyone is now so comfortable with zoom it has just dramatically expanded the kind of universe of guests we can have we we used to only shoot live in the studio so you had to be like free to come to the school on the weekend or maybe we could do it on a weeknight so this last you know eight months or so has been pretty um, fantastic for the show. We've had so many amazing guests. So um, you know Travis Bristol and Misha Mosley, who who we were just talking about. We just recently had Goldie Muhammad, who's uh, incredible. If folks haven't read her her book Cultivating Genius, like you gotta go out and get that book immediately. Um, if you're an educator who cares about um, you know about our curriculum and pedagogy serving the needs of students of color and in particular black students um gotta get get her book she was amazing we have had on um, a number of um teachers who are teachers and like coaches who are folks who are doing just fantastic work with uh their students and with educators across the country from new york from you know houston here in l.a um we have uh we've had on professors a bunch of different folks who are professors of education uh, we recently had on the director of, of our most recent episode has the director of teacher education at the harvard school of Ed, um, which is the, the program both manuel and i um, went through as you know baby teachers uh christina Villarreal or dr v um we had on the director of the uh, teacher education program at UCLA, um, Emma Ippolito, um, and uh, you know, folks who are just, I think, doing and kind of carrying the torch around helping to make our profession what I what I hope and think it can be, um, to kind of talk about their work and and share, you know, their their perspective with folks. And so, yeah, it's. Uh, it's, I love making the show, man. It's been such a such a journey and such an opportunity to connect with all these these incredible people. And for me, it's like very rejuvenating to the soul, right? Because uh, you know, it's just 2020 is what it is. And in general, the work is hard, right? And um, you know, it's it's helpful to like sit down on a Saturday and and kind of soak in some genius from all these amazing people. So um, it's it's been a great experience, man. Um, once I found out that you were doing the show, I started listening to kind of prepare and it is really great. Like I have to tell you that I have learned a lot from you and Manuel and your guests. And, you know, I think that you guys are doing some really great work and, and have some really great thinking happening there. So I just want to applaud you for that. 
Oh, thanks, man. I, I really appreciate that. And coming from you, I, you know, knowing the, the type of person and educator you are, uh, that, that means a lot. Um, it is, our hope is that the show would connect with people like, you know, like you who are, um, you know, I think it's fair to say have like made a career out of trying to do really good stuff in school with, with young people and, and not just, you know, sort of clock in and clock out and go home, but like, we can, we can do transformative stuff. And so to hear you say that is, uh, you know, warms my heart, man. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and, and, uh, and I've appreciated getting to, to know your uh, podcast as well. I was, before we turned this on, I was just listening to your episode with, um, with Lisa Sims, of course, the former principal at DSISD. But yeah, man, it's, it's, it has been uh, great to reconnect with you and, um, and to you know connect with your podcast as well well i appreciate that it's very flattering i i do have questions because that's where i met you was through springpoint and you're working currently doing some consulting with xq as well um can you tell the listeners a little bit about your work there what that looks like yeah so um i have i have to say i've been like super fortunate professionally to um to have been able to develop a consulting practice that that I just love because I you know I have my regular day job and I I really enjoy the work I do here in with schools in LA um, but also my consulting work is so interesting and I get to travel or at least back when we could travel I <laughs> I used to get to travel to places like Denver and and um, you know, the, a lot of the work that I do in my consulting practice with, with Springpoint and XQ is working with schools that are, that are new, that are trying to do school differently. So schools that are working on like a competency-based model, schools that are, you know, integrating project-based learning or CTE or other, you know, other uh, kind of models of school that, um, that are really intended to like think outside the box, right? And say like, what can we do differently for young people in, in this day and age where like we know a lot of the status quo does not work for enough of our, of our students. And so it's great to be able to go, you know, I've been able to go to, um, to Rhode Island, to Cleveland, to New York, to Denver, the Bay Area, other places in Southern California, like it's been, it's been an incredible uh, learning experience for me and also um, opportunity to, um, I think, to see, to connect with educators across the country who are all engaged in this kind of similar work where a lot of times if you're the one school in your district that's doing this, like you feel like the round peg in the square hole, right? Like all the rules are written for everyone else. And then they're like, what is that weird school over there talking about competencies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so this work has kind of helped me, you know, be able to lift my head above a little bit the, the fray and kind of like see what folks are doing across the country, which has been just been amazing. Um, I also do some work, some that's, that's just like coaching of, of school leaders um, in those contexts. Um, some that is like um, these observation visits, helping schools kind of take a qualitative dipstick of like, where are we at? What's working well? What are we, what are our next steps? Um, and then um, I've also done some supports for schools around here in the um, Southern California region 
with uh, like teacher team, professional learning community practice, which is a, a passion of mine, um, helping teacher teams, you know, look at student work and look at data together and think about kind of how to shift their professional practice as a team. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's something that I, I find fulfilling to the soul. Um, so it's, it's, I feel so fortunate, man, honestly, like I've, um, I don't even at this point, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I don't even have a website for my consulting practice. Like it's, it's just all been word of mouth over the years. And, um, I think I've been, been really blessed to work with amazing teams of people in you know, in different cities and to be able to kind of show folks what I can do. Um, in those contexts, and and that has kind of generated additional interest over the years. So, it has it's been a wonderful ride, and one that I hope I was worried when COVID hit. It was like everything came to a <laughs> a standstill, but things are picking up a bit more now. So, um, it it, it kind of keeps my educator soul, you know, going. It's like my own professional pet project and professional learning that I do on the side for my my job. Well, you're quite good at it. I remember when you were at DSISD with us, um, we took a lot of super valuable advice from you. I think you really helped us look at things from a different lens, from multiple different angles. So your work is appreciated. Um, I know that you're, you're quite good at it. I, I do want to ask, Jeffrey, um, seeing all these different schools, seeing all the sco these schools try to do progressive things in maybe slightly different ways, what are some things and trends that you're seeing is actually working? Um, and maybe what are some things that people are trying that just doesn't seem to have the effects that um, they're intended to? I, I will say that um, there is, in, in recent years, there's been um, you know, a lot of attention paid to, to John Hattie's work, uh, you know, looking at like what, what works in education. My takeaway from it, which I think has been anecdotally confirmed from my work around the country is that almost anything that you want to do can work as long as you implement it well. Um, and maybe some things work better than others and it depends on the context and whatnot, but like, you know, for me, my major takeaway from all this is like, there isn't a, there isn't a formula that works, right? Like there are different models and approaches and the quality of implementation is what matters most about whether something is actually gonna have the results you want or not. Um, and so I think sometimes we put too much effort into trying to figure out like what's the thing, what's the shiny object we need to pay attention to because that's the thing that's gonna fix our problem. And I'm like, you could have a school that's like, we sit outside in a circle and we talk with the teacher for three hours a day and then we play games the rest of the day and like that stuff will work man <laughs> like if you do it well kids will learn to read and they'll become curious thinkers right and the same way they will at the super cool innovative school with all the one-to-one -one chromebooks and you know computer design programs and all that um so i find that to be like hopeful um in that you know it's not like we're all just missing we, we haven't figured out the silver bullet um, I, you know, I do think that there's, uh, there's a common thing I have seen that does not work, um, which is 
very often the schools that um, that I think you named, right, that are often like the, these collections of amazing dynamic educators, small schools that are really creating like intimate spaces for kids, but are trying to do like seven or eight of those big things at once. Um, I've yet to see the school that can do all of that, particularly early in its development, successfully. And I think it is, uh, I think we, for a variety of reasons, keep recreating those conditions with new small schools. Uh, <laughs> whether it's the pressure of different funders who are, you're like, you know, we want to give you a million dollars, but you got to do project-based learning. And, and so, okay, we'll also do project-based learning, right? Um, or, or whether it's just the well-intentioned ambition of folks and wanting to do all these things that we know and feel are right. Um, these are really complex, uh, you know, these are black belt moves in education, right? Like being a school that's good at project-based learning or that's really truly great at, um, you know, social emotional learning and restorative justice, or that is, uh, you know, a school that is doing mastery-based grading really well, um, you know, a school that is, uh, you know, that's like breaking down the four walls of the building and getting kids internships and stuff, right? Um, it's hard to do that well. And I see few schools that do more than like one or two of those things really well. And um, so I think what I have taken away from, from what I've seen is that narrowing the focus and really deciding like what do we need to get good at that's like most core to who we are and what we're about um, and we're going to put our resources into that and we're going to have to even if it means you know kind of ideologically compromising on some other things we're not going to get good all of it at all of it if we're trying to do seven big complicating things at once and so we got to make some some tough choices there. And, and I think places I've seen that have had the most success are the places where they've made those intentional choices, right? Where they've said, like, we're going to do projects, but we're also going to have, you know, a math class that's a traditional math class because we don't know how to do project-based learning and math well at the high school level at this point. And we're not going to pretend that we do and have a bunch of kids who, you know, can't do algebra. Um, and so, you know, what, what those choices and compromises are is going to be different in different contexts, but, um, but, but I think it is the, it's the narrowing of the focus, it's the prioritization that, that breeds success from what I've seen. Share with the listeners a, a little bit about how you help support that uh, and, and maybe how that connects with what you have just said about the implementation. Yeah, I mean, I, Jeremy, I cannot overstate the importance from my perspective of, a, of an effective leadership team. And, you know, some of that is maybe biased because I've been a principal and I, you know, I spend a lot of time working with principals. So I can, I can own that. But I also think it's, it's undeniably true. There is, there is no single ingredient that's more important to the success of a school than effective leadership. And that doesn't mean that it's the only ingredient, you know, ingredient, right? Um, but, uh, but it does mean you can have an amazing collection of teachers. And if you got a crap principal, you know, or a, an administrative team that's a mess, uh, that school's going to come off the rails in the near future, right? Um, and it might take a while for people to get pissed enough to, to leave or, 
stop working as hard as they would or, you know, whatever it is, but it will happen. And, um, and so funny enough, I think we, as a, as a profession, right. And as, as institutions and communities don't prioritize enough the investment in the success of leadership teams to be able to support success at the school. Right. And like they're, you know, things have changed to a certain degree in more recent years with people entering teaching and not staying in it as a, you know, as a 20, 30 year career. Right. But still overwhelmingly in this country, teachers are consistent <laughs> presence uh, in school. Right. And they might have five, 10, 15 principals over the, you know, over the course of their, their career, right? Principals come and go, teachers remain. But they will tell you about like the, the times when we had a good principal and stuff was moving in the right direction, the times when we didn't. And it was like, look, I just keep my door closed and like, I'm trying to wake this one out because two years from now, they'll probably be gone. And so um, it is, it's so critical to the, to the success of the school. And in as much as um, the job of teaching is incredibly complex and difficult, as someone who was both a teacher and a principal, I will personally say for me, I've never had a job that was harder than being a principal. And I, and I would say that like, even the hardest times I had as like a first year teacher, were not as hard as as uh, you know as I felt it was being a principal, and um, I think I always felt as a teacher that I had more support than I did as a principal, and um, and always felt at least better able to be like I can walk down the hall and I can talk to Mr. Jensen and like you know, even if I just need to vent for five minutes, like I can do that. There's someone there that I can do that. And principals are alone in most buildings in that regard. Um, and the ability to like see other people's practice, right, is not, is usually not there for them. Um, and it's not like you can just, you know, <laughs> hop across town to, to go see someone else principal for a day, um, you know, very easily. So it's, um, it is vital to the success of schools and we shockingly don't invest anywhere near enough in the, the cultivation of success of school leaders. But, uh, you know, we, we do so, so little of that, uh, you know, as the, the default in most districts across this country. It's, it's like almost shocking that things work as well as they do, <laughs> given how little we, <laughs> we invest in those folks. Um, your job though, your, your sort of day job, um, how are you, what are you doing in that role to be able to support, um, the leadership development of others? Yeah. So thankfully that is the, that's the single biggest part of my job, which I, I love and appreciate. Um, so my, my title is senior director of leadership development and, um, the, the kind of biggest things that I get to work on are supporting the, the growth and development of our, we have 19 principals, we have 34, I think, assistant principals at this time in our network. And we have a cohort of about 200 teacher leaders uh, from across our schools who are in a, in a variety of roles. Um, so we have uh, like team lead roles that are kind of like your department chair or grade level chair type of position. 
We have peer coaches. We have folks who work on restorative, what we call restorative communities, um, which is kind of like culture building, restorative justice, and, and college culture oriented work. And we have a few other roles, um, all doing really important stuff, family engagement, arts work, good stuff. Um, and uh, we do, you know, to some extent, it's not revolutionary work, right? Like it's, it's professional development seminars throughout the course of the year. It's coaching and support with people at, uh, at their school sites, so more like job embedded kind of stuff to, to use the, the jargon. Um, and then I, honestly, I think that one of the most important aspects of the work is creating a professional climate in which those folks can exist that supports them in not just, um, you know, not just being like a lone wolf who's, who's doing that work at their school site, right? But they're part of a team. Um, and a, a couple of times a year, and, and I guess I should say part of a team, not only at their site, but part of a network where there are other people at other sites trying to do similar work that they can, if nothing else, know that they're not alone and hopefully, you know, take advantage of some of the community to share resources and, you know, have sites to visit and kind of see how other people are doing stuff or get fresh ideas. Um, and so, so I really love that that is what I get to spend so much of my time, you know, doing and thinking about. Um, and twice a year we bring the, um, we call them, you know, ILTs or instructional leadership teams, which is basically all the administrators, all the teacher leaders. And then there's a um, kind of a set of other folks who are in leadership roles that aren't necessarily in a formalized role with us um, who come together twice a year. So once in the summer before the year starts, we usually do like a four day, um, what we call our summer institute and then a one day winter institute in January. Um, and I think these are just powerful, like there's a lot of important work that gets done or learning that gets done, but they're also just powerful kind of culture setting moments where we also like step out of the work for a minute to say like, what are we about? And why are we, you know, like why are we doing this, this work and why are we doing it this way? And what's important? um you know for us to like fight for and and try to improve and um it is there are a few experiences that i've had professionally that are as kind of galvanizing as being in an auditorium with you know 250 to 300 you know educators who are there in august on a day when they're technically on vacation right or like <laughs> could be on vacation um who care enough about what is happening at their school and with the kids and families that they serve that they want to be a part of this conversation and um want to lead good work at their school site um and you know they're they're compensated for their time let me just let me just be clear about that but <laughs> uh so i'm not saying you know uh priest-like volunteerism for educators. But I mean, you know, there are people you could offer to pay who won't come to stuff in the summer, right? Um, and so uh, these are people that inspire me um, and, you know, helps me get this sort of like, well, we better bring our A game because educators get condescended to in all kinds of ways, you know, with like crappy PD that's not well-structured or no one 
put a lot of thought into the learning experience they would have, um, or it's disorganized when you show up, you know, or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I want to make sure that's not the experience that people have when they come to something with us. From a personal lens, um, how did you get there? Why did you choose this path? Why did you get into education? What made you stay? How did you get to this place where you are now? Well, I think uh, in high school, we had to do, in 12th grade, we had to do like a career exploration project. And um, I chose to uh, shadow. So part of it, we had to like find a professional or whatever and shadow this person. And I chose, I'm not sure if it was out of senioritis laziness or like good foresight, but I chose to shadow my, um, my high school principal. Um, who was an incredible woman. Um, her name was Mary McBee. And she just retired uh, a year, a year and a half ago now. Um, so she was principal for 26 years. And um, she's, you know, she's like a legend, right? Uh, <laughs> in, in Minnesota. And um, she was, uh, I think that was my first, like following her for a day and kind of seeing what she did. Honestly, I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. Like maybe I would want to be a principal someday. Um, and then I kind of, you know, I kind of set that down and, and just, you know, went to college and, and started taking some education classes and, and just got really fascinated um, with the, the possibility of being an educator. But when it came time to decide, I was on the fence about ed school or law school. Um, and I wound up applying for a fellowship. Speaking of our earlier question around um, recruitment and retention of teachers of, of color. So I got this fellowship from the Rockefeller, at the time it was called the Rockefeller Brothers Fellowship Fund. I think now it's called the Woodrow Wilson um, Fellowship, which is, which is a, a funny set of historical figures to name a fellowship about right. recruiting teachers of color after, but we'll, <laughs> we'll have that conversation another time. Yeah. Um, so they were gonna give, you know, they gave me a huge chunk of money to help pay for, for grad school, right? Um, and, and then a bit also of like a network of other young folks who were walking the same path I was. Uh, some of whom I'm still, you know, still friends with today. And, um, and so I decided I'm gonna go to ed school, but I took a year off to save up because I was, you know, I was broke and the fellowship was gonna pay for a good chunk, but not the whole thing. So I, I worked for a year and saved and I worked as a college admissions officer. And um, so I worked at my alma mater, which is uh, Dartmouth College. And it was like the greatest first job out of college ever. Um, so first of all, I want to give props to all my former colleagues at the, in the admissions office at Dartmouth. Like they were wonderful. And the dean at the time was a guy named Carl Furstenberg, who, um, you know, made a lot of space for me to be like a young professional and learn. And Dan, Dan Parrish was my, uh, my manager at the time, and he was great. Um, and uh, it was, so literally, there's the admissions process, which was fascinating to be a part of. Uh, but also, as now a, a career like K-12 educator, I literally got to take a tour of educational inequity across the country, Jeremy. So my, my um, regions that I got to travel to uh, included kind of the upper Midwest. So I spent time in Michigan, 
um, like in Ann Arbor and Detroit, spent time in Indiana um, around like Indianapolis, spent time in Chicago and kind of Northern Illinois and then Southern California. And um, it was, I mean, just, if you can imagine for those folks who've read like Savage Inequalities or any of those kind of books that like tell you that in very sort of, um, you know, compelling documentary style, like the, the inequities in American education, I was touring that, right? And then in the same day would go from, you know, a underfunded public school to like literally the nicest school you've ever seen in your entire, you know, your entire life that are like 10 miles apart from one another in the same city, right? And, uh, and, it and, and to see that that is true everywhere you go. That's true in Detroit, that's true in Chicago, that's true in Indianapolis, that's true in LA, it's true in San Diego, right? It's true all over the country, right? And, um, and so to, to like see it and interact with it and, and taste it in a different way. And I, growing up, I had my own, you know, version of under, coming to understand that. But this was like a national tour of America's educational debt. And it was such a powerful, uh, forming, formative experience for me around like, what, it, what is the work I want to take on with my career? And, um, and so that just like accelerated my, you know, my interest in, in education. Um, and so I went off, you know, got licensed as a teacher and um, was going to move to the West Coast, but it wound up in New York because uh, they, they didn't pay any money on the West Coast. And I had 13 cents in the bank when I finished grad school. And uh, so I came to, um, to New York City where I spent, you know, the, the foundational part of my career as a K-12 educator, um, as a teacher in East Harlem and South Bronx, and then uh, became a coach for a network of schools um, in New York City and kind of worked across the Bronx, Manhattan, and Brooklyn, and then went back to one of the schools I taught at as an AP and eventually principal, and, um, and then six years ago, came out here to LA to, to do this job, and so it has, it has been a fantastic career thus far, you know, I've, I, I have not regretted my choice to not become an attorney. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm good on that front. And, um, you know, I just feel like it, it is, it's hard for me to think of a better thing I'd want to try to work on every day than improving what happens in our schools. And, um, you know, before we started here, you were talking about, you know, this year just being so hard, right? 2020. And um, there are so many aspects of what makes this year hard that I think I see such direct connections between the dysfunction of our educational system and uh, what I see is perhaps the true crisis in our educational system and the political re reality we see around us, right? Like we have. Um, we talk about crisis in education, it's always like, well, what about the schools that serve all the poor black and brown kids? And I think we're hopefully starting to get to at least a little bit of an awakening as a country around like, what the hell is happening in all the schools serving all these white kids who grow up to 
drive their trucks and surround Joe Biden's bus in Texas and presumably threaten, the, you know, threaten a campaign bus? Like, what kind of insanity is that, right? Um, you know, who bring guns to voting stations to intimidate folks, um, who I, <laughs> I was just reading about, um, you know, this declaration out of the White House that today, November 1st, is a national day of remembrance for victims of illegal alien crime or some, some nonsense like that, right? Um, and that, you know, that's not to dismiss anyone who's been a victim of a crime out there, but, but to, um, to live in a world where such obvious uh, racism is like carrying the day in our national discourse and so, so much harm is being done so publicly and with so much pride and confidence, right? Like what's happening in the schools that all those kids went to and the schools where they're sending their kids right now. And so um, school is where it feels to me like we can, we can work on these problems in like a tangible way. Um, what do you consider to be your best failure? Mm, wow. You know, I, I often look back at my time as having been a principal and I have, I have vacillated back and forth over the last few years of um, like wanting to potentially apply to be a principal again. And uh, because I feel like I have unfinished business as a principal, um, I was, I've told people, I, I think I was proficient as a, as a, as a principal to perhaps um, poke fun at myself with my earlier comment about standardized testing. But, um, you know, I, I was like competent at all the stuff I needed to be competent at. And I, um, you know, I was good at certain things, and not so good at some other things. Um, but I don't, I don't think I stayed in the principal's chair long enough to like get really good. And I think I left uh, frankly, I left because the job felt like unsustainable to me and I didn't feel like I was going to get good enough quickly enough without like taking years off of my life. Right. Like I was working all the time and, you know, the, the work was crazy intense and I was neglecting my relationship at the time and just like, um, you know, wasn't in a great place. So I have I have like baked in me tremendous empathy for principals because <laughs> uh, I feel like I've been there where you're like I can work as hard as it is possible to work 24 hours a day seven days a week marshalling every resource I know how to marshal and still not feel like I can be excellent at this job in this moment right um, and that's that was such a tremendously humbling space to get to especially for someone who's been like very used to just like I'm gonna outwork this problem right or I'm gonna I'm gonna like leverage the resources I have around me we're gonna figure it out right and that's my kind of natural orientation towards the world um, but being a principal was was so humbling and um, and I think the um, the blessing I guess I got from that, right, was like real grappling with, uh, with failures and recognizing that like those failures are not the end of the world. And that in most cases we have opportunities to like learn and do it a little bit better next time, right? And um, 
that is, you know, that is like very easy to say out loud and very difficult to do when you're sitting with yourself in the shower thinking about, you know, what you just said in some email and whether that set the wrong tone or, you know, whether you forgot to acknowledge someone in a meeting and did that make them feel undervalued or, um, you know, or like you're looking at this plan your school built and, and you're like, man, this plan is not good enough. Like it's the best we could come up with, but it's just not good enough. Like too many kids are still failing ninth grade English or whatever, right? Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think my greatest failure was in that sense, like as a principal, but hopefully I've been able to kind of turn, you know, the, the parts of that that were there were failures into some learning and, and, you know, I think a, a part of why I do what I do now is wanting to um, help other people who are going through the same kind of thing. So what advice do you have for other humble badass educators? Oh man. I mean, probably what I was just saying, right. About like um, this work is so difficult. And, um, you know, you got to give both yourself the grace to know that, like, it's not going to be perfect all the time. Um, and also your, you know, the people you're working with, right? Um, and, uh, and I think also, like, I remember as a first-year teacher, there was, you know, I was working like basically like seven days a week until November, right? And I had a, um, a coach, literacy coach. Um, her, so I was a social studies teacher um, and the district paid for, at that time paid for these literacy coaches. So I'm, so I'm teaching in, in East Harlem. And Melissa, Melissa Menneke is her, her name. She, I think she's still a principal now in, in Brooklyn or maybe in Queens, but um, she, uh, she was just amazing. And um, there was a point in time where she was like, you need to pick a day of the week that you're not going to work. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, I don't know. I literally don't know how to do that. Like, when, like, if I did that, then how will lessons get planned? And how will I have graded stuff for the kids? And how will I, you know, I've done all these things. And, uh, and she was like, if you keep doing this, like, you're not going to, you know, you're going to quit in like February. So then how are you going to be any good to your, you know, to your students and to the school? And, uh, and I think she, she gave me permission to have a better balance, right? To, have, to find sustainability in the work. Um, but I think she did so in a way that wasn't insulting to my drive for, to want to pursue excellence on behalf of, of my students, right? Um, but, but like helped me grapple with that kind of essential truth of like, if, if you are not taking care of yourself while you are working to take care of the people you're working for, um, you're not going to succeed anyways. So you've got to have a, a, a plan in place that's going to work here. And, um, and that was such a powerful lesson for me that I've had to relearn multiple times, uh, <laughs> and will probably have to relearn again. And I, I think there are a lot of educators out there who are um, who are in the the camp of humble badasses that you that you talk to, Jeremy, folks like yourself who um, are often the people who, you know, you're in a formal leadership role 
you're in like five informal leadership roles and and you are always the people who get asked to be on the committee and to be on the task force and to you know when there's a new thing like well we got to get jeremy's opinion right and and like that's good but we are often the people who um by design or by habit um can get kind of sucked into a place of unsustainability and um and we have to remind ourselves to give ourselves permission to not fall victim to that um and so i think i would channel melissa's career saving advice to me uh, and pass it on to your um, your humble badass educator audience Jeremy and say like remind yourself uh, to to give space for you to create a sustainable path for you to do the work you are doing um, and that doesn't mean lower your bar for excellence you know it doesn't mean like don't care anymore and clock out at three every day right but it but it does mean you can't you know, ground yourself down to the nub and then have nothing left. Um, thanks for being on the show today. Um, our world is a better place. So thank you for choosing not to become an attorney and instead choosing <laughs> to um, help to educate both youth and the adults that are, you know, impacting, you know, this current generation, generations to come. I think that I have learned so much from you just today. I've learned some things from you. I, I've learned so much from you, um, from your show, uh, from our conversations, uh, from your work at our school. Um, I hope our listeners also um, can take away some really super valuable um, tidbits uh, from what you've shared here with me today. Oh, well, thanks, Jeremy. I, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, you are, um, you're definitely someone I, I, I have great respect for and, you know, haven't, haven't seen the results of your work at, at your school. It uh, means a lot to hear that from you. And so I appreciate the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here with you and the folks in your audience. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.